0: As uh, Danny mentioned just a few moments ago, we are closing out, rounding out um, our series that we've been going through over the course of the summer on favorite verses. Uh, this is number 10 of 10, um, and you guys picked some really great ones. We looked at some passages in Philippians and Isaiah and in John and um, in Jeremiah and in, uh, Proverbs. I mean, verses just kind of all over the place. And this one landed in Zephaniah. Danny's also been joking all week that this is going to be the best sermon he's ever heard on Zephaniah because he's never heard a sermon on Zephaniah. Um, so this is a little bit of an education process for us. The great thing that we have when we look at scriptures, we realize that um, while there are different writers and there are different time periods, there is one common thread that we see all throughout of Scripture, and that's God's desire to redeem and to restore people into a right relationship with himself. And ultimately, how we see that done through the person of Jesus Christ. So whether we're in Zephaniah, or we're in John, or we're in Philippians, we're looking for the same message, and that's the truth of Jesus Christ. It's the truth of the gospel. So this morning in Zephaniah, if you have your Bibles in front of you, and you don't have an app, um, if you go to Matthew, flip back four four books, and you're going to land in Zephaniah— Zephaniah is one of the 12 uh, minor prophets. Uh, it's a minor prophet just because it's short. Um, they're divided in kind of different sections and different themes. Um, there's the major prophets, which are the longer ones, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and, and uh, Zephaniah falls in that kind of smaller category. Um, the 12 minor prophets, they all kind of like push in the same direction, and that is driving home the key truth that God is good to his word. He's faithful to his promise. He's going to do what he says he's going to do, and so this morning, as we look at Zephaniah, let's keep keep that truth in our minds. So, flip to Zephaniah uh, chapter three, and we're going to look at verse 17 this morning. It says, "The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing." So this passage, we read it, and there's a lot of good in there, right? There are a lot of things that we want to hear, that God is with us, that he will save us, that he will rejoice over us, that he will quiet us by his love, that he'll um, rejoice over us with loud singing. So why, why is this verse one of our favorites? Why is this something that some of you turn to? And it's because we want to hear these words, right? We want to hear these words, not just in general, but we look to God to hear these words, these these words of comfort and reassurance that we're not on our own, that we're not left to our own to find salvation, that he does delight in us. We want to hear these things. And so we turn to Scripture, and, and Scripture reaffirms that, and it assures us of that truth, that God indeed is good, and he indeed does want our good, And he is on our side. Now, the thing about Zephaniah and this verse that I found just really interesting as I've looked over this, I looked over this passage, is the way that Zephaniah falls within the three chapters that make up the book, this this verse that we're looking at this morning. Because this book is so encouraging. It's like heartwarming. It's warm and fuzzy type verse, right? Like, God loves me. He cares for me. He's with me. He's singing over me like a, like a mother would sing over her children as she's putting them to bed at night. She's qui- he's quieting me with his love. And that same kind of like loving affection that a father would do whenever his child is fearful or scared. But the rest of this passage, the rest of the book of Zephaniah does not look like that, okay? Uh, if you looked at, at Zephaniah, it's kind of divided into three different parts, and you can see it one in each chapter. Chapter one, it is gloom and doom, bad news bears. That's the only way to describe it. Look at Zephaniah, flip over just a page, Zephaniah chapter one, look at verses two and three, okay? This is what, what God is saying through Zephaniah, just fresh out of the gate, as God is talking to his people, He says, I will utterly sweep everything away from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Hey, there's a sharp contrast going on there, right? We're going from, I am with you, I am singing over you, I will save you, um, jumping backward to starting off, and this is God sending down judgment on his people and on the nations. So chapter one, the majority of it looks like this. God is sending judgment. Why is he sending judgment? Why is this happening? If you read through chapter one, uh, what you would see is that God is correcting His people, and He's correcting the nations, saying that you have specifically to Israel, "You have turned from me. You are not worshiping me. You are worshiping other idols, you are worshiping false gods. You're turning to the stars. Anywhere but to God, they have turned. And God desires the worship of His people. And so judgment is coming. And you read this, and it's this really, really bad gloom and doom. And for Israel hearing this, they've got all these questions that are kind of rolling around in their head in the first place. There's been this change in circumstance. There's a um, uh, Assyria has fallen, a local uh, powering kingdom, and Babylon has risen, and they're just really unsure what it means for their future and for their certainty. So they're asking all these questions in the first place, which is just probably while they turn to false gods. They wanted some immediate reassurance They wanted something that they could do or work for or tangibly touch. And so they look to these physical stars that they can see in the heavens. They look to a a bale. They look to an idol that they can physically bow their body before. They're wanting something. They're wanting to be saved. And what God says is you are turning all other directions but to me. Things get difficult. Circumstances look shaky. And I'm the only one that you can turn to. And so all of chapter 1, that's what he's doing. He's correcting. He's saying, there is no one else to worship. Only right and and, and and a correct posture of worship is postured toward God. And that's what he's telling his people over and over and over again. That's all that chapter 1 says. It's bad. he ta- I mean, it's bad. We see in this just the severe judgment of God that he takes whenever people do not turn toward him and turn away from him. It's so difficult sometimes when, it, when, I, when I was reading through this that I just thought, this, this is kind of like worst-case scenario for Israel and worst-case scenario for the nations. But the truth that's lying in this is Zephaniah is declaring what the Lord is about to do. It's a warning. It's chapter 2. Chapter 1 leads to chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. It says, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning of anger of the Lord, before there comes on you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You, you do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the Lord. So he gives this judgment. He casts down saying, you've turned away from me. You've turned to yourself. You've turned to meet your immediate needs on your own. But then we get to chapter 2, and it's this, I'm about to do this. I'm going to send judgment. But there's this call for worship to be made right. So they're not worshiping God correctly, and God calls them into worship. He calls them into relationship with himself. So the cause is not lost. It's not the end of the road. We don't read, um, just stop with chapter 1, and judgment is handed down. Worship has been disoriented. Judgment is handed down, and that is the end of the story. We see gospel so clear in these two passages, and then when we round it out with, with chapter 3, that God desires to be rightly worshipped, and he invites us into relationship with himself to be rightly, rightly worshipped. I think that it's um, interesting that you can see this kind of story, this back and forth throughout all of Scripture. Think about even at creation at the beginning. God creates all things, he says that they're good. He gets to man. He says one thing is lacking, that man's alone. So he creates woman. And they're in the garden and they're ruling over all of creation. They're naming the animals. Everything is under their kind of direct care. God loves his people. He's in right relationship with them. But then their hearts turn. They go from reverence and worship toward God, toward seeing something directly in front of them that they, want worship, that they want to satisfy, that they want to orient themselves towards. Their desire for self-satisfaction becomes greater than their desire to live in right relationship with their God. And so God says, don't do this. It's good for you to stay away from this fruit. And they say, I know better than what God knows. And so they begin to worship. They begin to turn toward their own desires. And that relationship is broken and judgment is given, they're sent out of the garden. But even in being sent out of the garden, God gives them hope. He he puts up protection so that they won't come in and live in eternal separation away from God. There's a hope that one day they will be restored to him. And then we see, going through the rest of Scripture, soon after the fall and relationship is broken, God sets up a way for man to live in right relationship with God again. There's um, systems that are put in place. Eventually, God chooses a family. He chooses Abraham's family, that they would be the people that he shows his love and his character through. That when people would look at Abraham's family, when they would look at at Yahweh, Abraham's God— they would know that God is real, God cares, God is with his people. And we see that. We see that through through the, the creation fall story. We see that through Abraham's family. We see that when we get to this point right here, we're still dealing with Abraham's family again. They've turned back and forth. And I, I mean, honestly, I can relate to that, right? Can, can you relate to that even as people who have put your faith in Christ? That we worship him, we're in this room in one moment, our hearts are postured directly toward him, And then we move outside these walls and something else grabs our attention or fear abates that affection and turns our hearts, turns our posture away from him. And so we correct, we choose belief again, we choose to turn back to the cross. And God is continually calling his people away from the consequences of judgment and into right relationship with himself, continually over and over and over again. That's all of Israel's history in the Old Testament. Turn away from your false gods. Turn to me. Turn away from your false gods. It only ends in despair and destruction and hurt and pain. Turn away from them and turn to me. That's exactly what God is saying here in Zephaniah. Judgment's going to come. It's going to come down. People are going to be judged. It's going to seem ultimately like it's the end of the world. But come to me before it's too late. Before this judgment comes, return to me. And what we see in this passage is this element of hope. All is not lost. All is not over. And we see it continue even further in the fact that God does preserve for himself a remnant, a people that do turn to him, that do pursue right worship with him. They turn, they posture their hearts toward him. And then the prophet takes it a step further. Look with us, uh, look here in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Judgment has come down. God has called his people to repentance. We get to verse 9 and it says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him by one accord. It's like he's just changed paths midstream, right? Destruction, called to repentance. And then this prophecy, this, this word that Zephaniah is speaking, it's this, there's this three contexts that we're kind of operating in because he's a prophet. We've got this direct application when God is talking to his people, Israel, and there is a people that do turn, and there's a people that do live in right relationship with him. Then we've got the context of life and light of the cross, this future word that's being spoken that Zephaniah probably doesn't even have um, real, real understanding of what implications the words that he's saying really have but that Jesus would come and that all people would be given a pure speech and the ability to have a right relationship with God only through the person of Jesus Christ. So we've got current context, we've got Jesus context, and then we have this future down the road context where we see the fulfillment of what John writes in Revelation where literally all knees and bows and uh, all knees and tongues and peoples and languages they're bowed before the throne of God in true right reverent worship of the only one who is to be worshiped. So we've got current context, God's going to be true to his word, he's going to protect his people. We've got Jesus context, all invi- are invited into the family, all are invited to the party. And then we've got one day we will see this in full consummation. We'll see it in clarity. We'll see it in truth. When we look at at Zephaniah and we look at this passage, we see this progression. Judgment, hope, restoration. These three kind of themes that unfold here. And when we look at this passage, we have to remember that, that that Zephaniah is writing and he's speaking particularly to God's people, and he's saying that I'm going to do this, I'm going to judge, I'm going to give you hope, I am going to restore you. Now jump back after having this kind of context in mind. Jump back to verse seventeen. Zephaniah says, The Lord your God, He is in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So this is true of what Zephaniah is writing for God's people. And this morning, this these same words, this idea of God being near to us, God saving us. Gods delighting in us, those words are true for us today, but friends, it is only true through Jesus. It is only true through Jesus. One commentary that I read by a guy named Robertson he says that this verse is like the John three sixteen of the Old Testament that God so loved the world that whoever would put their faith in this coming Messiah in Jesus. They would not perish and spend eternal separation away from God, but they would be saved and brought into eternal relationship with him forever. So in the context of what's being said here, the fact that that Jesus has done this for us, that he has accomplished nearness for us. Just even look at that first one, that God is in our midst. Whenever Jesus is born, what name is he given? He's given Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. God has come he is here. He is. He is with us. Nearness has been accomplished. He will save us. What has Jesus done? Apart from Christ, we are separated from God. Our hearts were born into this world with them, just postured in a direction opposing to God. That's what the scriptures tell us. One thing that 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 um, God's people thought when Zephaniah was writing this is that God just didn't. He didn't do good and he didn't do bad. He just didn't care. What our hearts say is when we came into this world that we cared, we were turned away from him, but in the midst of our hearts being turned away from him and turning on our own. God has a plan. He had a plan for Jesus to come and to give us right relationship with God the Father. How did he do that? This is the truth of the gospel for us, friends. We didn't come into the world in neutral standing. We came in opposition We came battling for what we want, only what we want. And in the midst of that, in the midst of our pushing away from God, Jesus came and he did everything that we can't do. He lived in perfect, right relationship with God the Father. He never did wrong. He lived in perfection. Something that we could never even try our hardest to do. And then what Jesus did is he took on himself the sin of all humanity— So all the bad things that we have done, Jesus took on himself, and he paid the punishment for it. We did all bad. He did all good. He gets all bad, our punishment. We get all good in Jesus. Did you hear this? We do all bad. Jesus does all good. Jesus gets all our bad, and we get all of Jesus's good. So we can say that he is in our midst. He will save us. He has saved us. He will rejoice over us. He will delight in us. He will sing over us with loud singing, not because we've done anything right to earn that from God. I think that at times we can turn to a verse like this for self-help, to give ourselves some worth, to say that surely, because God is doing these things, he's in our midst, he did save me, he will sing over me, surely I've got to have something going, going on inside that he would choose to do that for me. When in reality, we have worth because God gives us worth. He gives it to us, and he proves it in the truth of Christ. So all this is happening. This passage is happening in Zephaniah, in Zephaniah. We this morning are living in this kind of like middle ground where we have uh, been extended salvation, hope, if we believe in the perfect life, his death on our behalf, his resurrection from the grave, defeating death, he conquered it, all things submitted underneath his feet, even death. And he ascended into heaven where he will one day come again and we will live in this perfect, consummated relationship with him where literally we will sing praises to him and we will, we will be in front of him and he will delight in our presence because we'll be face to face. But right now today, what does this passage mean for us? What does this passage say for us today? This passage reminds us of the truth that we live under judgment apart from Christ. The same way that Zephaniah was telling the people of God that judgment was coming, we are born into the world with judgment headed toward us. And Jesus takes that judgment for us. He restores us to right relationship with God. But I also think the context that we have this morning, I think that we can also feel a little bit like God's people did whenever this was going down. We see the full progression. But God's people, whenever Zephaniah is talking to them, if you remember right, there's all this uncertainty going on. There are all these things that they can't control. And they want to know what's happening, and they feel like they're about to be taken away. They feel like harm is about to be done to them. They've been um, all over the place. If you can remember just Old Testament history, how God's people have wandered, and they've been um, overtaken, and they've been cared for. And and God continues to show his faithfulness to them over and over again. But their short-term memory, just like I have a short-term memory, often pushed them toward forgetting God's faithfulness toward them. And so uncertainty is happening, and they begin to question— what's happening. And they're tempted to turn away from God. And just like I mentioned earlier, I feel like we are in uncertain times. And I'm not just talking, I'm not talking like big picture political. I'm not even going to step a foot in that. I'm not talking about what's going on around the world in political events. I'm talking about your life right there in that pew. And I'm talking about my life right here on this platform. We are in uncertain times where we are not sure what is going to happen next. We don't know what the next second is going to bring as far as breath into our lungs. We don't know what the next minute is going to take whenever we walk out of the doors of this worship center. And this is not gloom and doom. This is just reality. It's uncertain. And we have an option just like the people of God have an option. They had an option to turn toward God who has proven faithful over and over and over and over again or they had the option to turn toward God that they had created and put up in front of themselves, and that they could physically bow before. We have the option to do the same, to create our own securities, our own ways of feeling self-satisfied, our own ways of feeling like we can gain for ourselves some worth. Or we can turn to God, who through Jesus has proven the worth that he sees on us. He gives us worth. Same position. Let's look just specifically at this passage now that we've kind of like unpacked all the context around it. What does he say? What does Zephaniah say here? He says, the Lord your God is in your midst. I love um, when uh, Logan was up here uh, leading before, he kind of touched on this part of the verse. The fact that through Christ um, God has come to Earth, and that when Christ left, He said that He would leave uh, the comforter, that He would leave the helper, and that He would come, and He would literally live inside the hearts of those who trust in Jesus, the same way the presence of God dwelled inside the tabernacle whenever God was with His people, that He was in their midst, and He is in our midst, He is with us in light of the cross through the work of the Holy Spirit. It is true for us today. it is true for us today that God is in our midst. He is a mighty one who will save. This idea of mighty one, the word connotation that goes along here is this idea of like hero warrior, kind of going into battle, that there is a fight to be fought and that he will win and that he has won through the person of Jesus Christ. He is a mighty one who will save and he has saved us through Christ alone. He will rejoice over us with gladness that he takes delight in his people that he takes delight in his people. Just sit on that idea for a second. That God, who is the creator and the upholder of the universe, that he looks at you and he finds delight. He delights in you because he delights in his son, Jesus. And through Christ, whenever God looks down on us, he sees his perfect son. He delights in in you. If you have put your faith in Christ Jesus, he delights in you. If you have not put your faith in Christ Jesus yet, he desires to delight in you through the work of the cross. He delights in you. The wording here is very intimate. He delights in you. He quiets you with his love. Any turmoil or question or doubt that you would have about God's love for you and his care for you, he quiets it only in a way that God can do. He calls you to belief. He calls you to faith in himself. He quiets you with his love. He rejoices over you with singing. These, these concepts, they're very personal it's like it 's like we are here, and our God, our Father, is with us, and he 's saying these things directly to our face, whatever fear you have, whatever uncertainty you 're feeling, whatever question you have as to whether or not I am here with you. Believe this truth that I am here with you, and i 'm not going anywhere. Calm your heart, calm your mind, know my love, see my love the way that you can only see it through the person of Christ. Hear these words of soothing calm the way that a father speaks soothing calm over his children. I am with you. I will save you. I will rejoice over you. I will quiet your heart in uncertainty. I will rejoice over you with singing. He is with us. He is And across this room and wherever you are on the beach, the truth is that he is here. He is there with you. Whatever that circumstance or situation that you feel like is the end of your road, he is there with you saying these things to you. As a father says them to his kids, you may feel alone. You may feel deserted. You may feel unloved. You may feel like that there is no one in control. But what God our Father says and what he has proven through Jesus is that those things are untrue, that he is with us, that he is in control, and that he knows your situation. There are times when we hear truth like this and our our ears perk up and we want to say yes to that. We want to say, yes, he is in control. Yes, he is with me. Yes, he does care. Yes, he does love me. But then there's this little pocket of unbelief that just resides in that far corner of our heart Says maybe he doesn't. It's just like Jesus talked to that man in Matthew and uh, Mark nine. Jesus says um, the man says, um, "Heal my son." And Jesus and, um, and Jesus says, "I'll believe if you believe, I will heal your son." And the man says, "I believe, but help my unbelief. Help that pocket that doesn't think that this is true. Turn my heart towards you, God." So as we look at this passage this morning, as we celebrate the fact that our God is with us, not because we've done anything to draw him in, but because he alone is good and he has chosen to be with his people, to show the goodness of his character, the goodness of his nature, that a loving God would would ransom his people through his son, that he would do that and that he has done that for us. I want you to think through the progression of what we've seen in this passage. There's judgment, chapter one. There's hope in chapter two. God inviting, inviting uh, his people away from, away from sin, away from what separates them, away from God, and back into relationship with himself. And then there's restoration I just want you to ask kind of like personally, where do you fall in that spectrum? Are you a person who is living over here in this category where you feel like all you're hearing from God um, all you're hearing from God is, is the things that you are not doing wrong, but you're not hearing part two of the message about how God loves you and He desires to have relationship with you. Do you need to step from chapter one and peek into chapter two? Are you in chapter 2 and you hear this call and you understand that he desires relationship with you, but sometimes you just forget that he delights in you through Christ? You are in chapter 2, but you're not quite peeking over into chapter 3 yet. Are you in chapter 3 and you just kind of vacillate back and forth as to whether or not he is with you, he does care for you, he does know your circumstance and situation? I want you to just bow your heads and close your eyes for just a second. There are many things that I love about the truth of God's word. One thing that I love is the way that his Holy Spirit applies the truth of his word to our lives. And so I want you to just sit there and ask him for a second, what is, what is truth from this passage? What is truth from what has been talked about this morning that God has for you specifically? What truth is he speaking to you? The end result of this whole passage, this whole section, is restoration. Judgment comes as we're separated from God. Hope is extended as we're invited into relationship with him. And restoration happens for us here this morning only through the person of Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes closed and just hear this word this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For our sake, this is literally how Paul writes, for our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin at all, to be sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. That we get the best, we get God's best at the expense of Christ. We don't suffer that fiery wrath and punishment because we have Jesus to turn to and to put our hope in. We are not kept far from him. We are drawn toward him. Father, this morning, we thank you for the truth of your word. I'm amazed by it. It's crazy to me that you would choose to delight in us. That you would choose to make your presence with us through your spirit. As you are perfect and you are holy and you are right and you are just. And we deserve everything but relationship with you. But you, God, choose to have relationship with us. And you do that through your son, Jesus Christ. You give us worth and you show us our worth in him. You show us mercy, not giving us what we deserve, and you extend to us grace, giving us all of your goodness in Christ Jesus. And this morning, Father, I pray that your spirit would sink that truth into our hearts. That while you said this word hundreds and thousands of years ago to your people, that you say this word to us through your son, Jesus. You are with us. You have saved us through Christ. You will rejoice over us. You will quiet our hearts with your love. And you will sing over us like a good father. This morning we say together that we put our hope and our faith and our trust in you. You are the only one to be worshiped, the only one who can save. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.